0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading can be found on page 487, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. Page 487, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 19. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep the promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor on the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 30 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land." Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, For all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thank you so much, Rob, and uh, good morning. Everybody, let me uh, begin by adding my welcome to that of Matt's and a particular warm welcome to anybody who is is new, who is uh, joining us for the very first time. Now look, it's, it's a big church, it's very easy to get lost, but we really do want to welcome you into our church family. And uh, let me encourage you uh, to be proactive, and uh, maybe uh, particularly to sort of uh, link up with a small group, maybe to speak to a steward after the service, or to speak to, to, to Matt or myself. Um, and to see if you can find a a small group to to join or to find a way of getting the weekly email and we just need your details to do that so that you can be integrated into this month of prayer particularly so uh, let's begin then by praying together before we look at Nehemiah Lord our God we are conscious again that this is your scripture this is your word you caused it to be written, and we pray, O oh Lord, as we read it, as we consider it together, that you would grant by the Holy Spirit illumination, that we might read, listen, and learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I wonder how many of us are New Year resolution types. Now, I love a fresh start. But of those of us who made a New Year resolution, statistics tell us 43% 43 of us expect to fail before the end of January. Almost one in four of us have already quit, but there is reason to hope. 9% of us are going to see our resolutions through. A New Year gives us a chance to make a fresh start, to review how we should be living differently. A new resolution, to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Yet this is not a resolution cooked up on some hungover January the 1st because we're dissatisfied with our life over the previous 12 months. It's a resolution I made and a resolution that you made when we became Christians. And by the grace of God, we'll make this resolution tomorrow and every day this year and for as long as it is called today. Now in our passage just read to us it may not be a, a new year but Nehemiah has been given an opportunity to ask or at least circumstances have forced him to ask how should i be living differently what should my priorities be and we'll see that Nehemiah made a radical decision in the face of these challenging circumstances circumstances that had the potential to divide the old testament church in Jerusalem he made the decision to live a life of radical generosity. Now I wonder if any of us have added that to our list of New Year's resolutions. To live a life this year of radical generosity. To give of ourselves, of our things, of our time, freely and abundantly to bless all and everyone I come into contact with. Now let me, let me remind us where we are in the story. Nehemiah was was Jewish. He lived in Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. And this is all after the exile, after Babylon, after the Persian Empire had laid waste to God's people, to God's city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had been called to go and to restore the ruins of God's people, of God's city. And we've seen throughout our study in the book of Nehemiah that he has been faithful to that call, despite encountering opposition from the enemies of God. And we think of our story today in chapter 5, and the people have nearly completed the project. But a serious problem is coming to Nehemiah's attention. At the end of chapter 4, there we read verse 21, So we continue the work of building with half the men holding the spears from the first light of dawn till the stars come out. They're building note, from morning till night with a constant threat from the enemy. And they're putting their lives on the line to build these walls. It's perfectly understandable, isn't it, that these workers think that they should be treated with respect, that every other aspect of their lives should be made easy as possible as they flog themselves in the building of these walls. But this is not the case. And understandably, a crisis is looming that has the potential to derail all the good work that has been achieved so far. So let's begin by having a closer look at a critical condition that has developed, and it's laid out for us in the first five verses of chapter five. There's a great outcry in verse one that leads to three accusations that come to Nehemiah from the people. In verse two, we see there that we have large families, and and they didn't have enough food to feed their children. Verse three tells us there was a famine, and so instead of farming to get the food because they're building a wall, they had to buy the food, and there's not enough. That's the first protest. Secondly, there in verse 3, those who did own property had to mortgage their land in order to keep up with the spiraling inflation. You see, they had to pay tax to the Persian governments. See, it's worth bearing in mind that the Persian government, they would grant a lot of freedom to their people, but in return, they taxed the vassal nations steeply. And so what was happening is that the people who did own their property were borrowing the money against their land and leveraging it in that way. However, because the interest being charged to them, they were getting deeper and deeper into debt, and it was a developing crisis, and it was affecting the morale of the the, the workers. And then the third accusation was that the workers, who were borrowing to pay their expenses, were unable to pay. And because those who were their creditors demanded in return their children to be sold into slavery, And furthermore, we see there in the middle of verse 5 that it's already begun to happen. And we need to bear in mind here that this is Jewish people who are lending money to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And when they can't pay back, they're saying, well, give us your kids as our slaves until the debt is repaid. That is is a crisis. It was an outcry. It was a critical condition that the people found themselves in. The workers are being utterly disrespected and taken advantage of. See, nobody likes to be treated like this. Now, all of us, if we were in that similar situation, we would kick up a mighty storm, wouldn't we? And we see Nehemiah's reaction to this ill treatment in verse 6. He's absolutely furious. And we see, in reaction to this critical condition, Nehemiah demands, second, a radical response. And In our lives, in our families, in our jobs, I'm sure there have been those moments, and we'll remember them, which in that instant demand our complete attention to take an immediate action. resolve a crisis. If we don't, disaster will happen. And Nehemiah had one of those moments here and his response we see comes in two forms. First, he gives those who are making the lives of the workers a, a misery. He gives them a challenge, a command really. And second, we'll see that he gives a personal example of what this looks like for him personally. So, Nehemiah didn't just say, do this, but he said, do this and look at how I am going to do it. So, the challenge, first of all, in verses 6 through verse 13. And in verse 6, we read that Nehemiah is very angry. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And the Hebrew there literally is, it burned me up. He was consumed with fire. He was furious. But notice, Nehemiah didn't respond out of anger. Verse 7, he says, he pondered these things in his mind, or he took counsel with himself. In other words, he sought the Lord. He thought carefully. He got his anger under control, and then he acted. And it's a, a good reminder, isn't it, that we should always allow time and prayer before we respond to somebody who has hurt us. And then, verse 8, he gathered the people together in a great assembly and said, What is happening is wrong. This is offensive to God. And he called for a radical response in three ways. First, in verse 10, he said, Stop charging interest, period. You'll notice that Nehemiah had been lending the people money as well. Notice that. But the difference was, was that he was not charging interest. Join me. Let us all, he's saying, stop charging interest. The law condemns it. Second, verse 11, he said, restore what you have taken. If you've taken interest, if you've taken anything from your brothers or your sisters, give it back to them. So stop taking interest. Give back what you have taken. And third, keep your promise. You've got to promise to stop doing this and in verses 12 and 13 Nehemiah even brings in the priests as if to say before God we promise we won't do this anymore and they did verse 12 we will give it back they said and we will not demand anything more from them we will do as you say you know this was a phenomenal response It is absolutely vital here that we understand that the future of the kingdom of God is at stake. The future of the gospel witness of the Old Testament church is under threat because of their disunity. Verse 13, Nehemiah then did this prophetic thing, shaking his garment. Now, garments, remember, you're seeing the pictures in those days, had lots of folds in them, and they were, they were tied around the center, and important things were often tucked in the folds. And this is a picture that, that God will shake his garment, and those that are tucked in the belt of the fold will fall to the ground if they go back on their word, if they break their promise. And then, at the end of verse 13, we read, At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. It's amazing. It's really quite remarkable what takes place here. It's breathtaking. And it's of the Spirit. See, this wasn't human nature at work here. We're talking about money. We're talking about personal gain here. We're talking about letting their property out free of rent. About being generous beyond what is economically sensible. Beyond what they've budgeted for. It's a beautiful thing that in a context where the whole church is about to fall apart, the Holy Spirit comes and gives them unity. Unity. Now pause, you pause for a second. What does the Holy Spirit challenge the people with to move forward in faith? The temple has been rebuilt. The people have gathered back together to worship. What does it take to shift to that kind of kingdom building mindset, giving back and no longer taking interest on the money that has been loaned out. One word. It takes generosity. Profound generosity. That is the radical response that Nehemiah challenges his people with. Generosity. He knows that this is what will heal the brokenness of the situation. Your Generosity brings Healing. We know this, don't we? Helping others can add years to our lives. According to numerous scientific studies, it reduces depression. It eases anxiety. It gives us a more positive outlook on life. Generosity heals because generosity connects. It connects us to other people, and in turn, other people feel loved and appreciated. You know, as a family, we felt so loved and appreciated by the way that you welcomed us back at the end of September in such a generous and kind way. Thank you. It's what is so attractive about the Philippian church that we're going to be looking at together in in this Sunday evening. They were a church that always went above and beyond in their generosity to Paul. Nehemiah, however, he didn't stop there with his challenge. He challenged them further with his own radical example of generosity in verses 14 through 18. We read there that Nehemiah, by the, by the point of writing this account, had been governor for 12 years. So he's looking back as he's writing this down. Uh, This was his first appointment as governor in that area. And in verse 15, we're told that Nehemiah was entitled under Persian law to tax the people at 40 shekels of silver per month for his living expenses. Now, uh, 40 shekels of silver, I imagine that means very little to us, but I want us to imagine Bill Gates or Elon Musk. You see, that's the level at which Nehemiah could live with the amount of silver per month. And Persian law allowed Nehemiah to tax the people at that level to live as opulently and as extravagantly as he wanted. And former governors had done that. They relied, uh, they'd actually put a heavy burden on the people. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells us in verse 17 and 18, he says, verse 15, but I did not act like that. I did not tax the people to provide for his own lifestyle in that way. Instead, quite the opposite. You see there in verses 17 and 18, he does quite the reverse. Instead, he lavishes love and kindness on the people of Jerusalem out of his own resources. He provides there for the needs of 150 people, opening his home to those who came from the surrounding nations. They ate at his table and he served them daily out of his own expense. At some, I imagine, some significant cost as is detailed here. See, what we see here is we see radical generosity and it's life-giving to Nehemiah. So we see here, don't we, that Nehemiah is the real deal. He won't expect something of others without first putting him to practice what he asks others to do. And it's incumbent upon all of us, is it not, to serve by example? We've seen then that the critical condition the people found themselves in Uh, We've seen that the radical response. But one question remains. See, we need to ask, what motivates Nehemiah? What motivates the people of God to live out of that kind of generosity? What could give us the power to do the same? What could spur us on to live in such a, a radical way as a church? Well, let's consider, thirdly, a powerful spur. Now, motivation is, uh, is uh, to do something radical is often hard to come by. At least, at least I find that. You know, I have good intentions. But so often they come to nothing. I guess like so many New Year resolutions. So what is different for Nehemiah? And Nehemiah shows us two things, if you like, that motivate, motivate him to live like this. And I want us to notice, first, there's one phrase repeated twice in verses 9 and 15. Verse 9, it says, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And then, verse 15, But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people But out of reverence or fear for God, I did not act like that. See, here's what I think motivates, what makes all the difference to Nehemiah first. What motivates him to this kind of life of generosity is nothing less than the reverence or the fear of God. See, we don't use that phrase so much these days. We used to talk about it an awful lot. We used to say, no, they're a, they're a God-fearing people. And it was seen as a, as a compliment. In the past, that the church had wanted to be God-fearing. And many of us grew up aspiring to be God-fearing. But understandably, today, we can balk at the idea of fearing God. It suggests that God is a, a bully and, and we are to be motivated because you'll get after us if we don't do what he tells us. But this is totally to misunderstand the grace and the character and the love and the compassion and the kindness of our God. And so we have to go back to the question, what is the fear of God? Is it really fear? Is God's word commanding us to be afraid of him? And what is it about the fear of God that motivates this kind of generosity? Particularly because real generosity is motivated by love and not threats. And it's an important question for us when we realize that this phrase is repeated over 125 times in the Old and New Testament. And if we go back to to Proverbs, we'll remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And we definitely want wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom. The kind of wisdom to know how to respond to that situation that has made us really angry like Nehemiah. We want to and we need the wisdom of God to navigate our way through this life. Well, the Bible tells us that we have to start with the fear of God. You know, I I look at my life, I look at what's ahead of me, and I, I I, I want to love life well. I want my life to be a fountain of life to others. And I want to experience Jesus himself to be a fountain of life to me. Do we not all want that? And it goes back to the fear of God. So what is it, and how do we recognize it or its absence in our lives? Now over the years, Naomi and I have worked a lot with with young people, with youth, with kids, And we've taught that the fear of God is simply one thing. It is taking God seriously. Taking him more seriously than we take anything or anyone else in our life. I heard one person talk about the fear of God as getting it. Really getting it that God is the central, dominant, controlling reality of all of life. See, the fear of God is orientating all of life to him, to his word, his character, his promise, to his command. One author put it this way, the fear of God is the acute awareness of the presence of God's power that produces in me a sense of awe and calls forth from me honor, reverence, delight, and obedience. It's our church family verse for the year. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, a number of years back, we visited as a family at the, great, at the Grand Canyon. And uh, it was absolutely beautiful. The sun, as we arrived, was setting And picking up all the colors of the rainbow in the rock face as it went down. And it left us as a family with a sense of awe, of wow, isn't this fantastic? It spoke to us of the majesty and the power of our creative God. Now, one of our boys, who will remain uh, nameless, took it upon himself to climb down the rocks, and he got way too near to the edge of that canyon. And I was suddenly struck with terror. He was one step away from dropping a thousand foot to the bottom. It's a reminder that what is beautiful can also be terrifying. It has to be respected. And this is a poor attempt on my part at painting a picture of the fear of God. It's the awe or or, or the wow. Of God, and yet also the woe of God. Woe to me, Isaiah said. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, a sinner. Now, it's that that sinfulness that we understand more and more clearly the older we get, and the more we see God's Word, and the more we wrestle with His holiness, and we see ourselves. And then the more we look to the cross in confronting our sin that Jesus became. And the more we appreciate the grace of the gospel to meet us in our brokenness. And the more we are grateful to our Lord and Savior. And in response, the more we want to live a life in response to his sacrifice, a life of gratitude. The more We are getting it. The fear of God is what Nehemiah kept pointing to as he talked about what motivates and what empowers a life of this kind of generosity. But there's something else. Something very pertinent for us today. For us as a church that motivates us, God willing, this month. It's also something that evidences that we have grasped what it is to live our lives out of fear of God. So what is it? And you won't be surprised because it's been a repeating issue and thing throughout the whole of Nehemiah. It's prayer. Now I have a a confession to make. All uh, northerners here will despise me for this. Having lived in London for nearly 25 years, I began to wonder about 10 years ago, if I should support a southern football team. As well as Leeds United, I must say. I can feel Adrian's heat already. No shame, shame on me. I remember the moment when I finally saw the light. I was at an Arsenal game with Leeds. I got it. There's only one team for me. Now, there will be moments in your life when you suddenly grasp something with a fresh sharpness. You finally get it. And there's probably a lot of pieces to someone actually getting the fact that it's all about prayer, (laughs) getting to a place of absolute dependence on the Lord for everything. But if we pull back the lens and we look at all of the book of Nehemiah, we get Very clear evidence of whether or not we are walking in the fear of God because Nehemiah records 11 different prayers from the beginning to the very end of his book. As soon as Nehemiah realizes the city is in crisis in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he goes straight to prayer. And in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, we read, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And then he goes on praying. In verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering or fearing your name. Nehemiah gets it. That's why he prays so much. Sometimes his prayers are long, but most of the time they're really short. And in our chapter, chapter 5, verse 19, the last verse in the passage we read, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Another prayer. Again and again, Nehemiah prays. It's a prayer for his good. It's a cry for God's help. It's a prayer that is echoed in the very last verse in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 31. Remember me with favor, my God. Now I wonder, does that prayer sound familiar to you at all? Do you realize that that's the last prayer that Jesus heard just before he died on the cross? It's remarkably like the prayer prayed by the thief who was crucified next to Jesus. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. This is what Nehemiah is praying over and over again. Remember me. Oh God, for good. Remember me. Not that God will forget, but he's, but he's coming back to the fear of God that says, you are the central, dominant, controlling reality in my human experience in all of life. You're it, and I want to live my life orientated to you. And what would it look like for us as a church, for us as individuals to live like this in 2023? A life given over wholeheartedly to Christ. A life of radical generosity in response. A life full of meaning and purpose. A life of prayer. You see, it is to be captured afresh by the woe and the wow of our God. This is what empowers a life marked out by prayer. Where we find ourselves turning to him. Not just at the mealtime or at the end of the day but we find ourselves turning to Him again and again and again. It's also what empowers a life of generosity, extravagant generosity, not just with money, but with the harder things. Generosity with our time, generosity with our attention, our empathy, our service, our sacrifice. Generosity in setting down the things we feel we have rights to or are entitled to, and living to serve others As the Lord Jesus set an example for us to do. Now what would it look like for a life to be marked by this kind of generosity this year? What would it take for us to get there as a church family? It would take a real life of revering and worshipping God. A deepening sense of both the woe and the wow. What would your friend think if you became a man or, or, or a woman who lives in the fear of God, who lives with that kind of generosity? What would your marriage look like if your life was marked by pursuing God? The fear of God marked by a life of prayer together as husband and wife. What would your life look like if you are a a teenager? What would your parents think if they saw you as a teenager or or as a young adult or as a, a student living a life of prayer? Because you fear God. Because you get it. You finally see the woe and the wow. Let's ask God together. To build that deeply into our hearts, to use this coming month of prayer to do just that. Amen. Well, as the musicians come up, would you join me to pray? Heavenly Father, we commit these things to you, and we ask that you would make us people who live in the fear of God. We yes, ask, Lord, because of that, we would learn to live our lives marked by radical generosity. Do that for the sake of Jesus, for the spread of his fame, for the building of his kingdom, and for our eternal joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.